Welcome to Tisky Sour. We have one horrific story for you tonight and one incredibly worrying one. And we're going to be talking about potential war crimes in Ukraine. And then another report from the IPCC and some very, very dire warnings about climate change and how urgent action needs to be taken. We also have two stories about the Tory party, one about an MP who has got himself into trouble and another about the Labour Party and a potential cover-up. I'm joined, not as usual, um, on a Monday by Aaron Bastani. Welcome to a Monday night show, Aaron. Thanks for having me on, Michael. We've got a lot to talk about, so I'll shut up. Five, six stories, very varied. I look forward to hearing what you've got to say about them. As Russian troops have withdrawn from areas around the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, evidence is emerging of possible war crimes. The Ukrainian Ministry of Defense has released footage of their troops entering the town of Bucha after it was liberated from Russian occupation. Ukrainian prosecutors say they have found 410 bodies in towns near Kyiv. And I should say, we can't pretend we are in a position to independently verify these claims or any videos or, or footage that's just beyond our capacity. So we're going to show you what journalism is being done out there by organizations with a bigger capacity than we do on stories like this. So journalists from the BBC and Sky have both been to Butcher since its liberation. So we'll show you key parts of their reportage. This is Jeremy Bowen for the BBC. This clip starts with Bowen at the site of a successful Ukrainian ambush against a Russian tank unit. Young conscripts ran away, begging local people, said, not to be turned over to Ukrainian territorial defense. A neighbor who called himself Uncle Hrisha said, I felt sorry for them. They were so young, 18 to 20, with their whole lives ahead of them. It looks as if the Russians, as they prepared to pull out of Bucha, had no such pity. At least 20 dead men, some with their wrists tied, were lying in the street as Ukrainian troops entered the town. The mayor said they'd buried 280 people in mass graves. How's everything? Yeah. A few civilians who'd stayed said they tried to avoid the Russians, cooking outdoors because their gas, power and water were cut. This is the first bread we've had in 38 days, said Maria. The Russians systematically broke down doors to loot flats, they said. While they stole valuables and food, the soldiers made them sit in the cellar. Um, and this is part of a Sky News report also from Bucha. A mass grave for what Ukraine has called a massacre. Russian troops accused of killing civilians before pulling out of this town close to Kyiv. No hiding the horror. Unclear how many bodies are lying in this makeshift resting place. More hell in the basement of a house in Butcher. Ukraine's military says Russian forces used it as a torture chamber. Victims allegedly had their hands bound before being shot. Evidence of potential war crimes above ground as well. The brother of Kyiv's mayor documented what he saw. This is not special operation. This is not military objects. This is civilians. They've been shot in the head with the tight hands behind their back. This is genocide of the Ukrainian population. Ukraine says hundreds of bodies have been found in this town and others northwest of the capital. It's accused Russia of being worse than Islamic State, though Moscow's denied responsibility. Human Rights Watch also say they have documented war crimes in occupied areas of Chernihiv, Kharkiv and the Kyiv regions of Ukraine. They include the following. On March the 4th, Russian forces in Bucha, about 30 kilometres northwest of Kyiv, rounded up five men and summarily executed one of them. A witness told Human Rights Watch that soldiers forced the five men to kneel on the side of the road, pulled their T-shirt over their heads and shot one of the men in the back of the head. He fell over, the witness said, and the woman present at the scene screamed. Russian forces in the village of Staryi by Kiev in Cherniv region rounded up at least six men on February the 27th and later executed them according to the mother of one of the men who was nearby when her son and another man were apprehended and who saw the dead bodies of all six. And one more case cited by the Human Rights Watch. A woman told Human Rights Watch that a Russian soldier had repeatedly raped her in a school 
in the Kharkiv region where she and her family had been sheltering on March 13th. She said that he beat her and cut her face, neck and hair with a knife. The next day, the woman fled to Kharkiv where she was able to get medical treatment and other services. Human Rights Watch reviewed two photographs which the woman shared with Human Rights Watch showing her facial injuries. Their website provides much more detailed accounts of all of those allegations. Aaron, I want to bring you in. I mean, what can we possibly say about the scenes coming out from Bucha and, and elsewhere in Ukraine where Russian troops are withdrawing? Well, Michael, I mean, it's, it's, it's in, incredibly difficult to answer that on a number of levels. The first is, is journalistically. And of course, you're right to say we don't have the resources to cover this. And so we have to defer to other organizations, credible organizations, it should be said, Human Rights Watch, <clears throat> the BBC, various news outlets. But of course, the, the details and the specifics, I don't want to say for better or worse, but are incredibly vague for a range of issues. What we know for certain, however, I think this is super important, is you had one of the Klitschko's say this is a, a genocide of the Ukrainian people. This doesn't have to be a genocide to be war crimes. So we have sort of three things going on here. And I think people use that word genocide because it's so morally powerful and, and, and rightly so. And the UN has a definition of genocide, which may or may not be met in terms of what's happening. Again, we don't have all the details, but we don't necessarily need to go that far. So first of all, what Vladimir Putin did at the end of February is itself a crime. A war of aggression is itself a crime. It's established as actually the highest crime. You've got that. Then you have war crimes. What are war crimes? The killing of hostages, the killing of prisoners of war, the disproportionate destruction of civilian property. These are war crimes, pillaging, looting, etc. by military forces. These are war crimes. And then you have genocide. And I, I feel like often, particularly on social media or Twitter, it's almost like people reach for this third thing. You don't, you don't, need, to, you don't need to go there for somebody to be a, a war criminal. The threshold doesn't need to to be that high. What's clearly the case, I think, which is indisputable, what we're seeing with the videos you just showed, is, is clear sustained evidence of, of war crimes, which is obviously horrific and outrageous and, and, and should be met with a, a legal response in, in the long term. So there, there's three levels of criminality here going on. And I think it's probably important to disaggregate one from the other. You know, Vladimir Putin is somebody responsible for an illegal war of aggression, doesn't need to have overseen genocide in order to have to meet, I think ultimately he should meet, whether he does or not as a result of rail politique is a separate issue, a legal response. He should ideally be prosecuted. I mean, that's, that's, that's likely not going to happen. But I, I do think at this stage, that's important. And when people do try to disaggregate these things, it doesn't mean they're apologists or they're denying things. It's because it's very important when we're discussing these legal categories, distinct, to establish the facts. But like I say, in terms of war crimes, I think that the, the evidence is quite clear. No, I agree with you on that. And I do think the other thing to highlight is, again, and I do this on so many shows we do about Ukraine, but a lot of uncertainty. And I have to say that actually, after these scenes from the weekend, I, had, I have even more than I did before. Because questions which are open, I don't think anyone can really answer them at this point, is, is whether mass killing of, of civilians in this instance is something which is intentional and a core part of the war plan, or if it is something which you know is, is a byproduct of war. Now, that's obviously morally repugnant either way, but it matters when you're looking at what is the strategy of, of Vladimir Putin and what could be his potential next move. Another question, is this driven from the top? Is this just individual soldiers who are sort of acting against orders? Again, something we, we still don't know the answer. I do, though, and this is, I think, where sort of I've, I've become more uncertain as the weekend's gone on, I do think there are signs that Russian politicians and the Russian public have generally become more hostile to Ukrainians than I had previously realized, so a sort of hostility towards the Ukrainian people as such. Greg Yudin um, is head of political philosophy at the Moscow School of Social and Economic Sciences. He was arrested and beaten for attending an anti-war protest in the first few days of the invasion of Ukraine. He tweeted this incredibly interesting thread yesterday. Unfortunately, I am not surprised by the atrocities in the occupied zone in Bucha. One thing people tend to underestimate is the narrative built in Russia to justify this war. It sounds so outlandish to most observers that it is too easily written off. But it works. The narrative mounted by Putin for the first days of war focuses on denazification of Ukraine. Nazism is understood in Russia, just like anywhere else, as an absolute evil. 
However, it is seen as an external evil. Russia is, by definition, free from Nazism. We defeated it. It follows that Nazism is an external enemy that should be destroyed at any cost. The initial view was that Nazis have seized power in Ukraine while ordinary Ukrainians are just some sort of Russians with silly ideas about their identity in a ridiculous language. This meant denazification could be completed through regime change and Ukrainians should be liberated. Obviously, this conception failed when Ukrainians started resisting bravely. A natural conclusion from that, Ukrainians turned out to be deeply infected by Nazism. Yudin explains this has led to a, a sort of mindset where liberation is seen as something you get via purification. And then he says that affects the operational choices by the troops on the ground. Imagine you are a Russian soldier occupying a city in Ukraine. I know it is an unpleasant experiment. What are the classifications and distinctions you would use when dealing with the local population? Your basic theory is that this is a land occupied by Nazis and you are here to liberate it. Obviously, Nazis will resist and those resisting are Nazis. Your primary task is to separate the Nazis from poor Ukrainians and make the city clean from Nazism. Greg Udin also gave a recent interview, which is super interesting. I'm going to read you one quote from that. The accusation that the Ukrainian authorities are supporting the extreme right has been pervasive in Russian official discourse for some time and not entirely unfounded, as we've talked about on this show before. In February, however, it turned into purely essentialist rhetoric, implying that Ukrainian essence, which is allegedly Russian by nature, has been contaminated by some Nazi element. Therefore, it is the task of the Russian army to purge Ukraine from this Nazi element. Greg Yudin there saying that potentially there is now, I agree with Aaron, it's way too early to talk about genocide or anything like that, but there, there is a motive whereby you could at least say it's plausible that there is an ideology which sort of sees the killing of ordinary Ukrainians as, as something which is a part of the war, not just a sort of accidental byproduct of it. There was also an article which was widely shared today. This is from a Russian news agency called Ria Novosti. And it's written by a pundit called Timofey Segestev. And these are some quotes from it. And it sort of seems to confirm some of the ideologies that Greg Yudin was talking about. So some quotes I've, I've picked out from it. In addition to the top, a significant, part, a significant part of the masses, which are passive Nazis, accomplices of Nazism, are also guilty. They supported and indulged Nazi power. The just punishment of this part of the population is possible only as bearing the inevitable hardships of a just war against the Nazi system, carried out with the utmost care and discretion in relation to civilians. Now, the images we've just shown you and we've seen over this weekend seems that the utmost care and discretion isn't being taken when it comes to harming civilians. But you can see there the, the ideology which is being talked, which is Nazism, is something which clearly infects a wide proportion of the Ukrainian population. He goes on, denazification can only be carried out by the winner, which implies one, his absolute control over the denazification process, and two, the power to ensure such control. In this respect, a denazified country cannot be sovereign. And later he goes on to say the terms of denazification can in no way be less than one generation which must be born, grow up, and reach maturity under the conditions of denazification. Now, if you read those two quotes in conjunction, that suggests that Ukraine is not going to have sovereignty for at least a generation. According to this commentator, right, this is, this is not Vladimir Putin, but it is in a state-run news agency. So it's, you know, it's not entirely unrelated to the leadership. He goes on to say that denazification will inevitably also be a de-Ukrainization a rejection of the large-scale artificial inflation of the ethnic component of self-identification of the population of the territories of historical Little Russia and New Russia begun by the Soviet authorities. And elsewhere in the article, he says, unlike, say, Georgia and the Baltic countries, Ukraine, as history has shown, is impossible as a nation-state and attempts to build one naturally leads to Nazism. Now, as I say, this is one article in a state-run outlet but it actually does have quite a lot of similarities with Vladimir Putin's sort of original speeches, which he gave to launch this war. And what has changed since then, I think, is what Greg Uden was talking about. So in, in Vladimir Putin's initial speeches, what he would say is that there is a group of Nazis and drug addicts who have taken over this fake country. And what we need to do is get rid of them and rescue its people. Now the war has started. Those people didn't want to be rescued. They've actually fought back very hard against the Russian army. And you can see how quite easily... Putin's original argument becomes, oh, actually, we need to cleanse the Ukrainians of, of all the people who are defending the government. So it does seem like, you know, something potentially pretty dark is taking place here. I also want to go to a couple more tweets. Anton Barbashin, who we had on the show recently, so he's talking about sort of popular Russian attitudes. He says, talk to a few folks back at home about Butcher. 
Anton, are you stupid or a provocateur? It's clearly a fake staged by Hollywood. You've spent too much time in the West. You have been corrupted by their propaganda. It's the West doing. They need a pretext for more sanctions. Or please, let's not talk about this. I don't even want to look at that. Or yes, I've seen it. I can't see it anymore. So obviously mixed, mixed views. He says, for people 35 to 45 years old, trust in TV is down, but they've started receiving more propaganda content via WhatsApp from people they know. So what that's suggesting, and I imagine Anton Barbashin, you know, has probably a more sort of liberal Western-focused group of contacts than most Russian people do, or most Russian people within Russia would do. And he's suggesting lots of people are really buying Putin's propaganda when it comes to this. Maren, I want to bring you in on this because I think we both have, I mean, I know I have been sort of inclined to the realist perspective on the war in Ukraine. This is Vladimir Putin, you know, not acting necessarily particularly ideologically. He wants to sort of give the West a bloody nose, wants to reinforce his Mm. power at home potentially by starting this war. And I hadn't really considered the extent to which there would be, again, I don't want to say a genocidal logic, but it does seem that a sort of ethno-nationalism that I think I hadn't fully appreciated that seems to potentially be at play. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, I entirely agree. And I, I, I agree that it's specific to Ukraine and, and potentially one day Belarus in a way that it wouldn't apply to, to Georgia. And if you look at some of the, the sort of ultra-nationalist punditry around this, a great example is Alexander Dugin. I did a podcast about him. His influence is, is vastly overstated in many accounts, but he was a senior you know, professor at University of Moscow, he has at one point advised uh, quite a senior member of the Russian Duma. He has published a best-selling book in, on geopolitics called you know, The Foundations of Geopolitics, a sort of political science bestseller in, in, in post-Cold War Russia. And he has described the war for Kiev, uh, the battle for Kiev rather, as the, the culmination in a fight between what he calls the Galicians, which is Western, Western Ukraine, and Greater Russia. And again, it's that same rhetoric which you talk about from the piece in Rea Novosti. He talks about how this is an epochal fight, an existential fight, and that Western civilization, totalitarian, liberal Western civilization, I know there's lots of conflicting words there for us, is embodied in what he calls Ukrainian Nazism, which he describes as the ultimate evil. And so I suppose a question for our audience here who might be skeptical about the ideological nature of Russian ultranationalism and the role it's playing here. Are these, are these frames and these phrases? And when you're saying that Ukrainian Nazism is the ultimate evil and you're equating any form of Ukrainian nationalism to Ukrainian Nazism, I, I think it's indisputable you're, you're really raising the stakes in terms of how political disagreement can become a form of, of military annihilation. So what that means is, let's be clear, Ukrainians who want a sovereign independent state from Russia who don't view themselves as being part of a wider Eurasian civilization are Nazis and are therefore the ultimate evil in opposition to Russian civilization. I mean, those are extraordinary words. Now, Dugan is in, in no way a, a typical man. You know, there's photos of this image, uh, images rather, of this man in, in, in Georgia in 2008 holding a Kalashnikov and a, a grenade launcher. So he's a pretty strange academic. But there is a strain of, of public opinion in, in Russia which does think like that. And I think you're right, Michael. For people like us, we, we really didn't see that coming ahead of February and the role it plays. Again, I'm speaking with quite a lot of uncertainty here. Is I think I had assumed that because this was a war of often people who were ethnically Russian who were, who were being occupied, or people who were, you know, by Putin's own account, fairly close to Russians ethnically, that that would sort of limit any kind of brutality and sort of any talk of, and I, I still think it's way too early to talk about ethnic cleansing or anything like that. But basically, I'd, I'd thought those would be almost irrelevant concepts in this war because it was a war of one group of soldiers who are occupying and fighting a group of soldiers who are, if not the same ethnicity, then ethnically similar. But I think potentially what sort of articles like that show, what, what you were talking about there, Aaron, with Alexander Dugin, and what actually, sort of when you look back at it from this frame, what lots of Vladimir Putin has been, what lots of his speeches have been implying, is that actually, you know, the othering of the Ukrainians is so fundamental that, you know, that sort of ideologically motivated killing, I wouldn't see as something which is as irrelevant as I potentially thought it was in this conflict. We'll come back to this story. I'm hoping to get Greg Yudin on soon so we can sort of talk about his ideas in more detail. Next story. 
The IPCC have today released a new report into the climate crisis. The report states that emissions must peak by 2025 and halve by 2030. So all pretty ambitious. UN General Secretary Antonio Guterres said this. The jury has reached a verdict and it is damning. This report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is a litany of broken climate promises. It is a file of shame, cataloguing the empty pledges that put us firmly on track towards an unlivable world. We are on a fast track to climate disaster. Major cities underwater, unprecedented heat waves, terrifying storms, widespread water shortages, the extinction of a million species of plants and animals. And this is not fiction or exaggeration. It is what science tells us will result from our current energy policies. We are on a pathway to global warming of more than double the 1.5 degree limit agreed in Paris. Some government and business leaders are saying one thing, but doing another. Simply put, they are lying. And the results will be catastrophic. This is a climate emergency. Climate scientists warn that we are already perilously close to tipping points that could lead to cascading and irreversible climate impacts. But high-emitting governments and corporations are not just turning a blind eye. They are adding fuel to the flames. They are choking our planet based on their vested interests and historic investments in fossil fuels, when cheaper, renewable solutions provide green jobs, energy security, and greater price stability. To discuss the new IPCC report, I'm joined by Adrian Buller from Commonwealth. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Can I begin by getting you to sort of talk about what have we learned from this report that we didn't know already? We've been talking about IPCC reports fairly regularly, it seems. So what's special about this one? Yeah, so we're at the end now of the like AR6 or the sort of assessment cycle, the sixth one. And so there have been a trio of big reports in the past few months, which is a bit disorienting. But this one focuses specifically on mitigation. So rather than looking at, you know, what the impacts will be and how bad 1.5 or 2 degrees would be, they look specifically at different pathways for reaching those targets. So it has quite a few kind of new findings that were really interesting from sort of a justice perspective and from the perspective of calling out the fossil fuel industry, which Antonio Guterres did really well there, and a sort of, for me, a tonal shift in the nature of the IPCC reports that we've seen to date. Is this the plan? It was this scientist sort of coming together. We've we've told you the problem in the previous reports. Now we're going to tell you this is the step-by-step plan of how to solve climate change. No. What it does is kind of look at various scenarios for how we might get to the targets that were set out in the Paris Agreement. So it looks at a range of different scenarios, including ones based on sort of existing policies. So really critically, what they looked at is, you know, based on the commitments that were made in the NDCs or the nationally determined contributions related to the Paris Agreement, which is basically the you know country level targets the countries submit, they sort of establish whether or not that would get us on track. And so based on all of the commitments that had been made in the run up to the COP26 conference in Glasgow, they basically said, no, that's that's not going to happen. Those don't get us on track for 1.5 degrees. And that's, you know, just what the commitments are. And it has even less to do with what's actually been sort of implemented. So the policies that have actually been brought into force by the end of 2020, which is sort of when this report stops evaluating, keep us on a path that's much, much higher than a 1.5 degree world, which would be one that is safe. And the other aspect is they looked at planned and existing fossil fuel infrastructure and the question of whether we could continue to build new fossil fuels. And I think we all kind of know the answer to that is no, but it's good to have sort of a definitive assessment from the IPCC that says basically that existing and planned fossil fuel infrastructure would send us, you know, way past the carbon budget for 1.5 degrees, which obviously stands in stark contrast to the plans of a lot of major world governments, particularly in response to the sort of Ukraine conflict to scale up domestic gas production in the name of, you know, energy security. And so it sort of really, really stands in contrast to a lot of existing politicians' positions. And I want to ask you about the process of publication of this report, because, you know, these are sort of academic reports. They're also diplomatic events, I suppose. All, all of the parties of the UN climate change process, they, they have to sign off on it. So there's haggling. 
And I understand there was sort of much more wrangling when it came to this report than there had been for previous reports. And so it took a, a lot longer to sort of finalize this one. Could you talk about that and, and why that was the case here? Yeah, I mean, all I can do admittedly is speculate because I wasn't sadly in the room. But I think definitely, you know, so there are two sort of major publications that come out of this. And one is the sort of 3000 page report that just summarizes all the science. And they can't really do all that much to change the content of that. But the thing that everybody reads is the sort of 60 page summary for policymakers. And that's what all the kind of heated debate is over. And that's because that's where you get all the sort of major takeaway lines. And a lot of the lines in this one are things like not having any room for new fossil fuel infrastructure, which is obviously a hugely contentious point. And a lot of countries would want to sort of downplay the wording on that, really soften it. I think they haven't really succeeded, but clearly that would be something that I would think was attempted. But they've also got, you know, some lines in there that I think are great about, you know, existing carbon pricing schemes, for example, being quite ineffective. And that's obviously a favorite policy of sort of economic liberals. And it's one that the IPCC basically suggests has been not all that useful. So again, I would imagine that was contentious. And they've also got some points about the need for for demand reduction and sort of for socially conscious policies and for making sure that anything like using biofuels or offsets doesn't, you know, encroach on indigenous rights and territories. So all of these, I think, are obviously great additions to what has often been a reporting process that kind of shies away from the social implications. But that definitely would be something that you can imagine a lot of government representatives sort of pushing back against. Let's finish by talking about one other idea, which I know is controversial, and which I understand was sort of included in this report for the first time, which is, I suppose, geoengineering or sucking carbon directly out of the air. As far as I understand it, this report said, we're going to have to do that now. We're going to have to sort of contend with the fact that reducing emissions isn't going to be enough. We're also going to have to essentially suck them out of the air and bury them or whatever. The uncomfortable reality is that there's no way to actually achieve like a sort of stable 1.5 degree climate or net zero without some kind of carbon drawdown process. Now, whether that needs to be kind of spooky geoengineering technologies is a different question because basically, you know, the more that we do in terms of mitigation and the steeper the emissions cuts are, the less that we have to rely on carbon drawdown technologies. And a lot of that can be done through nature-based solutions, although I kind of hate that term, but, you know, reforestation and sort of conservation and soil conservation and all sorts of projects like that, rather than, you know, massive carbon capture projects or, you know, geoengineering type projects. And the report does kind of mention that, you know, a focus of the way that we use those technologies should be what they call sort of residual or hard to abate emissions. So those things that we really can't cut out of the energy mix or the economy in the near term. And so it's really important that the framing of that, you know, acknowledges that these are probably going to be quite necessary, but that they should be in all cases limited to only where they're needed for those sort of hardest to abate areas rather than this kind of get out of jail free card to continue building new fossil fuel infrastructure with the implication that maybe at some point you can draw those emissions back down. And that's why it's controversial, right? Because people are worried that some politicians will say, look, we don't have to do anything because geoengineering will come and save us. Is that, does that seem like a risk? Are there? I haven't really heard politicians suggest that. Do, do you think people are maybe a bit too worried that talking about geoengineering or sucking carbon out of the air will then just mean that all of the presidents of the world say, oh, screw it, let's, let's keep our oil-powered cars? Maybe in that extreme set of terms, it probably hasn't been floated. But there are a lot of scenarios that, you know, different groups like the International Energy Agency or, you know, even the IPCC, because they do a range of scenarios that they publish that have, you know, varying levels of the use of these technologies. So you can have scenarios where politicians could point to scenarios that use much more of them and say, okay, that that allows us to scale up this infrastructure. And that's definitely a useful kind of point. And, you know, a lot of the fossil fuel lobby points to that as well. But the other reason that they're controversial is there are serious kind of ethical implications and risks to them. So, you know, some technologies like afforestation, which is, you know, putting forest in where it didn't previously previously exist, have serious implications for sort of land grabs, for indigenous communities, for the sustainability of agricultural land. And so that's another sort of controversy embedded in it is it's not just using like new technologies. It's, it's a lot of questions surrounding the justice based implications of them as well. Thank you so much for that, Adrian Buller. Always a pleasure to get you on the show. Thanks. Good to see you. Next story. Non-disclosure agreements should never be used to silence potential victims of abuse. They are an attempt to protect an employer from embarrassment at the expense of justice. And as we saw from the Me Too movement, they can lead to chronic harassment going unaddressed. 
They are, in short, exactly the kind of thing the Labour Party should be opposed to. But it turns out they've tried to use them in exactly this way. The BBC report that Labour staff have been gagged over sexual harassment claims, and they say two former Labour staff were asked to sign confidentiality agreements after making complaints of sexual harassment about a senior official. Laura Murray and Georgie Robertson refused to sign the legal agreements and chose to resign without payouts, according to documents seen by BBC News. Their lawyer, Mark Stevens, said the contract violated the Equality Watchdog's guidance and Labour's own policy on non-disclosure agreements. Of the complaints of these two former employees, the article states the BBC has seen documents including an initial complaint, formal grievances and official correspondence in them. Ms Murray complained the man was acting overbearing and possessive and had been pressuring her to go for drinks with him. He was also constantly messaging at all hours of the night and had made inappropriate comments about her love life and her attractiveness, it added. Ms Robinson alleged the official had also previously sought her out while she was working late and had pressured her to go for drinks with him following a private event. After rebuffing his advances, he then started to spread false rumours that I was sleeping with a married man at work. Georgie Robertson and Laura Murray explain how these complaints were initially dealt with poorly, with confidentiality being broken and the subject of their complaint being informed without their consent. Laura Murray, for her part, tried to resign in January 2020, but was encouraged to stay on. And then the situation got even worse for both once Starmer took office. That's because, on top of the harassment claim being poorly dealt with, the two staff members now found themselves accused of being the source of the labour leaks, something which they deny. The BBC report, after months of uncertainty about their jobs, Ms Murray and Ms Robinson took out formal grievances and tried to negotiate their exit. The pair resigned after Labour Party lawyers asked them to sign a settlement agreement with a broad confidentiality clause seen by BBC News. I refuse to accept that and to be silenced, Ms Robertson said. It could encourage the party to use those agreements in future with other women who'd been harassed. They go on, the legal agreement would have stopped them from speaking about their experiences of harassment and from bringing any future, present or future claims against the party or the official. It would have also required them to compensate Labour for all costs related to the leaked report, their lawyers said. Aaron, what do you make of this story? The last sentence of that screenshot is just insane. What they would be, the party would be indemnified. I mean, we're talking potentially millions of pounds here. Who's going to sign an NDA, put to one side for one second the, the claims of sexual harassment in the workplace, dealt with very poorly and so on. Who's going to sign an NDA where they could potentially be down millions of pounds? And, and also, you know, they've not, they've not been found guilty of anything. I believe there's a civil process ongoing in relation to the leaking of the report. I don't know if it involves these two women, but it seems a very, very strange offer from from the party leadership. What it tells me, and this does go beyond just Keir Starmer and David Evans, but I, I think you also have to be fair to people like Jenny Formby and, and Jeremy Corbyn. It was getting better, to include Ian McNichol. The Labour Party, for an organisation with a turnover of more than £50 million a year, wants to run the country you know, wants to effectively be the bureaucracy that runs a country of 65 million people, providing, you know, economic, political, cultural, moral leadership. It's a terrible organization, Michael. You know, Navarra Media, we have a couple of dozen people in articles, podcasts, videos. My God, you know, we're a much better run organization. I don't want to go on specifics of this, but that's what comes out with this story is just, it's a really concise expression of how utterly dysfunctional the Labour Party is. I think you'd really struggle actually to find many businesses which operate like this. When I say business, I don't mean, you know, a corner shop down the road or, or the dog and duck pub. I mean an organisation with hundreds of members of staff, with a turnover of more than £50 million a year, with recognised trade union branches. I think Labour Party staff actually have a choice of two, the GMB or Unite. This is extraordinarily strange behaviour. Like I said, it's just dysfunctional. It's just a, it's a rinky-dink organization where you've got this bit bolted on there and there, and it's just completely absent of professionalism. And we see that time after time after time. And the, the almost amusing aspect of it with David Evans and Keir Starmer, of course, is that they're having to be presented to the public by the media as these exemplars of professionalism and intelligence and competence. And what we see time and time again is anything but. And I suppose the question is, 
for people like David Evans in particular, because realistically, this is more his competence than Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer is ultimately the leader of the parliamentary party. What gives you the idea that you can run a country, that you can provide the senior civil servants, that you could administer the state if you can't even administer the Labour Party? And so for me, this is an expression of a much broader problem. And it is intriguing, you know, that time after time on issues of race, on gender, LGBT rights, Labour is found wanting. Now, I don't think that's because Labour's more aggressive than the Tory party. I don't think that. But it is instructive that when it comes to workplace practices, they don't put their money where their mouth is. You know, we see that, for instance, with fire and rehire. We see that with them saying, oh, you can't have below uh, inflation pay rises. Well, they've just given their workers 2% pay increases this year, probably 6% below inflation. And now we're seeing it with really abhorrent, unacceptable practices in regards to sexual harassment in the workplace. They, they talk the talk on this stuff, but they very rarely walk the walk. I think it is worth also just emphasizing how bad NDAs are and how sort of just completely unforgivable it is for an organization like the Labour Party to be encouraging people to take them. So how it works is sort of someone makes a complaint, you try and agree some sort of severance package so the party will give you a severance payment, but then you sign away any rights to talk about this thing. Now, these are often used. And as I said in, in the intro, sort of in the Me Too movement, you'd get people who had been victims to sexual harassment or alleged victims of sexual harassment in a workplace. The employer doesn't want it spoken about publicly. So the staff member thinking, well, either I've got to go through a really traumatic court case or I can take this payout money, which gives me time to get a new job, and I can just put, put all of this behind me. So often people sign these for you know, very, very understandable reasons. I can absolutely understand making that decision as well. But then the problem there is that when you have systemic problems, they never get found out because you've given an NDA to this woman who might think it's an isolated incident. You get rid of this woman with an NDA who then thinks that she was subject to an isolated incident. You've got all of these people with various NDAs. And what it means is that structural institutional problems or you know serial abusers, as there were many in Hollywood, don't get found out because everyone's been gagged, everyone's been silenced. So I, I do think you know, with the Labour Party, we covered it a lot when Corbyn was leader. We cover it now when Keir Starmer was lead, is leader. Sorry, A lot of what happens there seems to just be like incompetence, sort of factional warfare, creating just completely bizarre and dysfunctional outcomes. But there are some things where you shouldn't need to have a sort of streamlined management system to just say, this organisation does not try and get women to sign NDAs in relation to sexual harassment claims. There is no way where you can say, oh, sorry, we need to restructure the organization because it's not that efficient, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There is no excuse for doing that. It's very easy not to do that. And it seems the Labour Party in this situation have done that, or that they, at least they tried to. And, you know, well done to these women for, for not taking those NDAs. As I say, I, I completely understand when people do. I mean, as Aaron said, in this case, it doesn't seem like it would have been financially useful because they also wanted them to sign off to say whatever money a court tells you you have to pay because of the Labour leagues. Because as we talked about before, you know, people were named in that, lots of them are suing the Labour Party. They say you as individuals are going to have to pay all of that, which could clock up into the millions. So seems like it was an incredibly strange offer from the Labour Party and pretty bad practice all around. Next story. There's tough competition for the title of most out-of-touch member of Britain's Tory cabinet, but Jacob Rees-Mogg is definitely up there. He recently called the Partygate scandal fluff and fundamentally trivial, and he's now defended those comments on LBC. But I would, I would reiterate that that is not as significant as what is going on in Ukraine and the cost of living crisis. But for, so, mis, but for someone such as Chris, respectfully, Mr. Rees-Mogg, and for some of my listeners who bade farewell to their loved ones as they got in ambulances, never to see them again, who went to hospital wards and were not permitted on there due to COVID, to hear that at that very time there were parties going on with They are understandably team. cross about it's this. It's a visceral feeling. They are understandably cross about this. Which they don't see, Mr. Rees-Mogg, as, quotes fluff or, quotes, fundamentally trivial. Jacob but I Rees think they have to... We have to think about, in the inquiry, whether this level of rule was right. We need to get to what was the fundamentalist. But that doesn't help what, someone saying no, goodbye I, to I, I, I agree with that. But what we should learn from this is not in relation to parties, but was it ever right to say that you weren't allowed to be with people as they were dying? And Absolutely I think it's so not. important that the inquiry that is going to take place looks into whether but, the restrictions were proportionate, because... Actually, I think that you remember um, the picture from a funeral where 
uh, an official came along and said that uh, I think it was a in son a shouldn't be near. Son was taken from his mum. Yes, this was not something that should ever have happened, in my view. That that element of rule enforcement, of approach to rules, was simply unkind. But you're almost and arguing against yourself because because if that if that son and that widow encountered that level of grief to hear a senior politician describe it quote as fluff yep. and fundamentally trivial. That's sickening to them, Mr. Rees-Mogg. I ask you once again to review those words. No, I, I think those words, in the context of what's going on in Ukraine, are completely reasonable. I don't think, I, I, I don't think the issue of what may or may not have happened in Downing Street and what we are now finding out is fundamental. What I think is fundamental is that we look in the inquiry at how the rules were devised and the effect that they had, because I think some of those rules were inhuman. So when we show these clips about Partygate, sometimes they can feel familiar. And there was one argument he made there, which we've talked about a lot, which is conservatives standing up and saying, well, actually, they maybe broke the rules, but the rules were the problem anyway. Now, obviously, that's incredibly offensive because we all had to follow those rules. People who didn't follow the rules got fined. So you can't get found out that you broke them and then say, oh, actually, the rules were the problem when you made them. I think we've, we've covered that a lot already on this show. This new excuse, though, which Jacob Rees-Mogg mentioned there, and which I find kind of just as offensive, if not more, is to say, oh yeah, maybe it was bad, but you know, there are worse things going on in the world, such as the cost of living crisis, which to be honest is your fault, and the war in Ukraine, right? Now, on one level, maybe that makes sense, but it makes as much sense as me saying, oh, sorry, I cheated with your husband, but there's a war in Ukraine, so stop talking about it. Sorry, I stole your laptop, but there's a cost of living crisis, so why don't we just talk about more important things? Those things have nothing to do with each other. And you have to take responsibility for the thing that is your fault. You can't say, oh, I've done this bad thing, but there's a worse thing going on somewhere else in the world. That's not how adults should make arguments. It's maybe how very small children should make arguments, but it's not how adults should make arguments, and especially not our political leaders. Aaron, what did you make of that interview? I mean, it was just puzzling, Michael, wasn't it? You know, this isn't a big deal because actually the laws that we imposed as the government were stupid and they shouldn't have been adhered to anyway. This doesn't fly in any other media environment in Europe except Britain's. And it doesn't, it's not vomited out of the mouth of any politician except the likes of somebody like Rhys Mogg. And the thing is, some people will buy it. You know, some people are like, yeah, it was a bit OTT, wasn't it? We were all carried up in the moment. You were the government. I find this a very strange defense. There was one gentleman from Tottenham who received a £2,200 fine for not having a good enough reason to be out. And uh, he was in a car with somebody else. I was not wearing a mask and they got a £2,200 fine. There's people like that up and down the country, right? That's not a party. That wasn't a super spreader event, who were fined for doing things like that. And actually, they were guilty of nothing compared to what we saw repeatedly at Number 10 Downing Street and elsewhere amongst the Tory party, various soirees and get-togethers and quizzes and booze-ups. But that was nothing. And so I think if, if Rees Morgan is going to be consistent here and say, well, actually, the law was wrong, we shouldn't be too harsh on those who broke it, you know, well, that, that, if we're being fair, that should therefore cover tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people who've been, who've been hit in their back pocket. And like you say, it's very strange for him to say, oh, well, you know, compared to the cost of living crisis, this is really a small fry. Well, the guy who had to pay a £2,000 fine and now is seeing his energy bill double, you shafted him on both counts. So it's a very, very strange defense. But then Rees-Mogg specializes in absurd defenses, which seem to, which seem to cut through. I, I feel like we, we live in a media environment now in Britain where the truth is so, is so, is so meaningless. And I don't mean that like post-truth, you know, the facts matter because we've always have, we've always had politicians who like to dissemble and, and deceive. My, my God, look at the Iraq war. But I don't think anybody sort of wore that and presented that as gleefully as Jacob Rees-Mogg. You know, Tony Blair always liked to say, I'm an honest person. He liked to have a semblance of intellectual coherence in what he said, whereas Rees-Mogg just sort of flies from one crazy position to the other in real time, and you're watching it, and you think, wow, this guy's a senior lawmaker for the party of government. He's not some, you know, eccentric backbencher who nobody listens to, which is what he should be. You know, he's, he's one of the people in charge. He's an avatar of the conservative government in 2022 deeply concerning. I, I sort of find the response from Nick Ferrari also very strange. This should be a moment of almost mockery for him. And yet he's sort of saying, well, you know, have you considered the counterpoint? And they're two cheeks of the same ass and they're both part of the problem. Nick Ferrari and Jacob Rees-Mogg. It's true. If you value yourself on being a really tough interviewer, he shouldn't have been able to leave that room like 
not having been completely humiliated. So I, I do think Nick Ferrari definitely, well, you can call it a failure or you can call it that he, he lets right-wing people off easy, whichever explanation you prefer. Next story. Since being elected in 2015, Tory MP David Warburton has condemned the appalling exploitation of young people involved in the sale of drugs and the intimidation, violence and criminal incentives they face. He has also called for international action in tackling the drugs trade and criticised double standards in politics. This is a picture of David Warburton alongside four fat lines of cocaine. It was taken eight weeks ago. Of course, I've got no problem with people taking drugs. I don't especially like hypocrisy, but there is a grimmer side to this story. The Times say the photo with the cocaine was taken with a woman Warburton had met through politics. He had allegedly insisted on coming to her flat, despite evidence that she was drunk. And the Times report, Warburton's apparent misconduct eight weeks ago did not stop with drugs. He allegedly would not leave the woman's home. She recounts that as she became less drunk, she grew uncomfortable that the pair were alone together and retreated to her bedroom to put on her pyjamas in an attempt to encourage his departure. When she emerged, she says, Warburton was naked. He allegedly explained that he always slept nude and climbed into her bed. Fearful of how he might react, she did not push him away, she says, or demand that he leave. Despite her repeated and explicit warnings before and during his visit, that she did not want to have sex with him or do anything sexual, Warburton allegedly ground his body against hers and groped her breasts. The woman says that she lay frozen until the MP fell asleep, snoring loudly. David Warburton has also been accused of sexual harassment by two former members of his parliamentary office and has now been suspended from the Conservative Party. He is also said to have failed to declare a loan of around £150,000 from a Russian businessman. Lots going on in this story. But the Daily Mail has Warburton down as himself a victim. This is the spread they've got on the Tory MP. The article says, Tory insiders have privately voiced concerns about what appears to be an elaborate and extraordinarily well-researched expose of Mr. Warburton's behaviour. Questions are being asked why a recording was apparently made of him asking a woman to order cocaine on his behalf, telling her he would pay. Doubts have also been raised around the apparently incriminating photograph. It shows the MP leaning against a table in a dimly lit room. The MP stares into the lens with a serious expression, his chin resting on his fist. On the table sits a whiskey on the rocks and arranged neatly on a baking tray what appears to be lines of cocaine. Who took this astonishing photograph and why was he posing in this odd way? Perhaps more pertinently, why would a relatively experienced MP ever pose alongside a significant quantity of Class A drugs in such a way that could not only torpedo his career, but also see him arrested by police. They think this is because of some foreign intelligence agency. I think maybe it's because he's an idiot. Anyway, though, for, for more detail of their allegations or their insinuations, uh, the Mail suggests that Conservative Party managers are investigating a potential link between the allegations coming to light and a foreign communist party, given that elsewhere in the piece they suggest it's the Russians and the Chinese who may be interested in such sting operations. I assume the Chinese Communist Party are the suspected culprits of this story. Why the Chinese Communist Party would want to take down the career of this particular backbench MP, I don't know. Let's go to his comment, though, um, which is not convincing either. For his part, Mr. Warburton has said, I have enormous amounts of defence. It's very Trumpian. But unfortunately, the way that things work means that doesn't come out first. I have heard nothing whatsoever from the independent complaints and grievance scheme. I'm sorry, I can't comment any further. We're going to say that the next time you're accused of something, I have enormous amounts of defense. I'm not going to show you them, but I have enormous amounts of defense. In another twist, David Warburton has now been admitted to hospital. So his wife, who is also employed to run his office, says Warburton has been admitted to a psychiatric hospital suffering from severe shock and stress. So this is a Tory MP pictured with big lines of cocaine. I read you that pretty horrific account of, of, of what the woman accused he, he did on that evening. You've also got two staff members who've made sexual allegations against him. One of the reasons they said they weren't able to make those complaints formally is because the office was managed by his wife. So they would be making claims to his wife who they, didn't, who they thought didn't know their husband had been cheating on her. So the whole thing was like incredibly awkward and weird. He's also borrowing money in a sort of 
suspicious way. Now you've got the right-wing papers saying, oh, this is a sting operation from the Chinese, although no one seems to be disputing that he did any of these bad things. I mean, obviously, I think he's denying them, but no one's sort of saying that the Chinese fabricated this evidence. And now, as well as them suggesting it's a sting operation, he's admitted himself to psychiatric hospital immediately after this story came out. Aaron, so much going on here. What do you make of it? The Russia and the China angle is just is hilarious, or the foreign communist party entities is, is hilarious. I mean, this is, this is now the reality of politics, Michael. Every time something goes wrong for a right-wing politician, we're, we're going to hear this. We saw it re recently with fracking, you know, oh, well, actually, the arguments against fracking aren't that strong. And in fact, that was an argument which was being pushed by, you know, Russian-owned media and uh, people of, you know, disreputable sort of political backgrounds who maybe were being funded by overseas interests who didn't want us to be, you know, energy independent. And we'd have to depend, even though Britain actually doesn't really use any Russian gas or oil. So this is another kind of crazy story we've heard recently, which is the arguments against fracking had the power they did because they were backed by Russia. I'm afraid to say this is the kind of blue tick centrism obsession with Russia, with China, with overseas influence is going to toxify any ability to have a meaningful domestic conversation in this country. Anyway, I think in this instance, it's so stupid, it can be dismissed out of hand. Who would have the ill judgment as a politician to sit by half a gram of cocaine? Well, somebody who just took the other half a gram. That's who, you know, if you put five lines of cocaine up your nose, you generally don't have good judgment, right? There's a pretty decent explanation there. We don't need to talk about the Chinese Communist Party or the FSB to ascertain why this guy did it. And another one as well, you know, he was making waves months earlier about eight stone of weight loss. Well, now we know, you know, if you put hundreds of pounds up your nose every week, it works. It's a pretty expensive way of doing it. And you have major health downsides, you might have a heart attack. And as we've seen, you, you won't behave particularly rationally, but it's certainly an explanation. So uh, yeah, very, very strange. And, uh, the blaming it on foreign communist parties is just the icing on the cake in an utterly depraved story. The fact that his wife as well was the office manager is just... And let's get to the bottom of it. You know, because sometimes the Daily Mail and these papers, when they want to destroy somebody, they can actually produce good journalism. I think there's a big enough story here, an interesting enough story here, that they may end up doing that. Probably be the Sunday Times, right? It is a very, very, very strange story. The part that is strange, so she recorded, so the person, so the, the first woman we referenced who's made these you know, pretty horrible allegations against him, he comes across incredibly abusive. She had recorded him talking about buying cocaine, and they're like, so why would someone record it? You know, there are sting operations, but they're normally done by sort of like the newspapers, not by foreign governments. And also, I, I don't see how that would be combined with a sting operation, because normally a sting operation, you don't then add a criminal allegation to it, because then that massively complicates things. So the whole thing mm. seems very odd to me. But I mean, it seems like there's some pretty clear evidence of this guy doing quite a lot of bad things. Aaron, let's wrap up there. Pleasure to be joined by you on a Monday evening for a change. My pleasure, Michael. My pleasure. I wish everybody watching a great week ahead. And we'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.